The sermon uh, today is called The Liberal Missional Church. And it's a privilege to start off your month's theme on liberal theologies. Independence Weekend is an appropriate time to begin exploring this particular theme. I also appreciate it because in doing preparing the sermon, it got me very pumped up for the Unitarian Universalist History and Polity course that I'll be teaching again at Phillips Theological Seminary this fall. Well, in, let me start with Professor Gary Dorian wrote a monumental trilogy of religious history that was published a few years ago called The Making of American Liberal Theology. And he begins his first chapter with us in 1805 and our roots in American soil that had sprouted that year with the liberal or Unitarian control, some said takeover, of Harvard University. The decades-long reaction to that by others would soon lead New England minister William Ellery Channing to preach the Unitarian Christian Sermon in 1819 and to the American Unitarian Association being founded in 1825 to promote pure Christianity, their term for liberal Christianity. And with that, American liberal theology, according to Dorian and many others, began flowering institutionally in both academy and church and in much of society. Many today, both in and out of church life, across faiths and denominations, whether they have ever heard of us or much less even heard of our religious ancestors, they have inherited much from us, as Dorian's work shows. Even as it chronicles much of the ups and downs of liberal theology through the centuries, and as it concludes on an upbeat note, as will I. Hang on. <laughs> but I got a few places to go before I get there. While it starts with Channing in the first chapter of the trilogy, also in the final volume, there are chapters on some of the leading liberal theologians of recent times who were also in our church life. Henry Nelson Wyman and Charles Hartsorn and the great James Luther Adams and even more recently Forest Church and Tandaica all received chapters for their influence in and beyond our own church life. Of course, what I want to talk about this morning is that the actions in the early 1800s were a direct result of the changes brought about through the events of the, of the, of the year we celebrate this weekend, 1776. The revolutionary spirit in politics manifested itself right along with the revolutionary spirit in theology. For example, the war had caused half of the members of Boston's Anglican or Episcopal King's Chapel to flee to Canada, loyal to the British Empire. In 1785, after the war, those who had remained tried to get a new priest appointed by the Church of England, but were unable to do so. And so they turned to one of their own liturgists, a former Harvard student who was also a convert to the liberal movement and anti-Trinitarianism that had been emerging in the United Kingdom, acting then like the other churches in the Boston area, like Channing's own church, for example, what were called the Standing Order churches, the ones that were the oldest in New England, King's Chapel then voted to call their own minister. And when, and you gotta be careful when you do that. No, when he became the minister, James Freeman, with the support of the church, made some changes in 1785 to the Book of Common Prayer to fit in with his theology. So they then became, as their motto now says, 
Anglican in worship, Unitarian in theology, Congregational in polity. Revolutionary stuff. Another result of 1776 is seen in the story of Joseph Priestley, that famed scientist in England, friend of Benjamin Franklin's and supporter of American independence and liberal minister, who was chased out of his country, found refuge in Pennsylvania, and started the first church on these shores explicitly named Unitarian in 1790s. Liberalism's openness to differences. Even back then, they were major differences uh, theologically between the likes of Channing and Priestley and others over how to understand Jesus. And liberalism's historic trust in human nature and God's nature and in what the future might unfold means it is somewhat inherently revolutionary. James Luther Adams used to write about the religious reformation always being through liberalism in process of reformation. And liberalism itself, too, he said. Liberalism is dead. Long live liberalism, he wrote. The first of his famous five smooth stones of religious liberalism is that truth is continually being revealed, renewed, reclaimed even. Of course, if you look at the Unitarian Universalist Association today, you will see that our oldest churches have been in existence many years before 1776, and its revolution in King's Chapel or the church Priestley founded. Those Puritan standing order churches in Massachusetts date back to 1620 in Plymouth and in enough other places that just by 1636 they had to form Harvard University in order to educate their ministers. And by 1646 to 1648, they had experienced enough controversy that they needed to come together in the first major gathering of churches in order to write the founding document of our covenanted congregational spirit, the Cambridge Platform. I like to point out, or it's pointed out to me often, that a few of our oldest churches, though, like Plymouth itself and a few others, proudly and somewhat in jest uh, uh, remind all that they didn't attend the Cambridge Synod, and so they have their doubts still, <laughs> though they follow its congregational traditions. That document maintained as one of its major covenants that the voluntary association of persons coming together to become the church had the authority, the wisdom, and the responsibility to choose its own lay and ordained leaders, whom they called in their typical Roman, sort of counter to Roman Catholic style that was very much a, a part of their ethos at the time, they called them Christ representatives on earth. It's been a while since ministers have been called that in our, uh, in our tradition. <laughs> Not one pope, you might say, but one for every congregation. And if they could do that, why not be trusted to elect other mere public servants like governors, presidents? The Cambridge platform and the independent Puritan congregationalism that came to these shores in New England set the stage for the political discernment that those same people had the ability and the calling to choose their own governing leaders. Now, we wouldn't consider those Puritans as liberals today in many ways. As, for example, just one example, they restricted their leadership according to gender. And they weren't theological Unitarians either, as they accepted at Cambridge in 1648, without debate, the Westminster Catechism that was rooted in John Calvin's theology. 
but they were still religious revolutionaries. And an unintended consequence of their action in placing so much focus on the covenantal nature of religious community is that those very covenants came to be perpetual new wineskins for new wine. And they took the place of the creeds. Not that creeds didn't and couldn't contain religious truths, but they would not let even that truth become the arbiter for all time. That went to the covenants. And so many of these churches, too, after the Revolutionary War, bloomed with a new spirit that took Unitarian shape whenever they discerned the spirit of their age and called a new minister to serve with them. The covenants allowed them to do so, the same way they allow for radical changes today. So in this way, 1648 led directly to 1776, which led on the Unitarian side to 1825 and the founding of that side of our association today. And there is something inherently liberal about the choice of covenants to be the structure or the way of the church, even when the outcome of these covenants is far from what would be called the liberal, progressive, generous spirit of today. Covenants reflect a belief that is one of the old brochures at All Souls in Tulsa used to put it, God works in freedom. And so do, and does so in large matter, measure through the blessed imperfection of humanity. And that freedom is not the same as the license to do what one can or can do or what one wishes to do, but is a gift we give to one another and maintain in community. Those covenants of the Cambridge platform guide our liberalism today. The covenant between persons and church, between church and elected and called leaders, the covenant between churches, the covenant between leaders of those churches, the covenant between a church and its parish or its wider community, the covenant between a church and what it finds most sacred. The liberal tradition says there is not one way to be liberal. Not one way to craft those covenants that fit all congregations. Not even all congregations within the same religious association. But that we should take them seriously. Conrad Wright, the late professor emeritus of church history at Harvard, a Unitarian Universalist professor emeritus, in his essay on the doctrine of the church for liberals, said that too often liberals focus attention and concern on the adjective liberal and what it requires, and not enough on the noun church and what it requires. And that taking all of these covenants seriously and in love is what makes the difference between a church and a collection of religiously oriented individuals. We can see then that liberal religion is often focused on the how of religion, on the processes and openness of community. In his work, Professor Dorian describes this focus as liberalism's foundation as a mediating force. He calls it a third way movement that always has one eye on how it differs from the fundamentalist or dogmatic religion and one eye on how it differs from disbelief or from the non-religious. This is a valuable function but it can result in liberalism becoming consumed with itself. 
and how its identity crisis is wrapped up in how unique it may or may not be. And it can become so attached then to how it presents itself, to what it proclaims, to getting its message right, that it can become irrelevant. Especially in a world that is increasingly more concerned with what difference a religion makes in communities that are suffering than in what a religion says about itself. And especially in a culture where many of the values of liberalism and pluralism and free thought have become the air in which newer generations naturally breathe and grow up in, in ways my generation and older ones did not experience and had to struggle to achieve and needed religious community to help us do so. In the church culture of this country, dominant in the 1950s and before, Liberalism's inherent process orientation and third-way focus for helping liberal churches define themselves in society helped them to thrive because the church was primary in culture. And so the primary mission of the church, rightly or wrongly, was seen as how to promote one church uh, and how it differentiated itself from another particularly if you were a church where the majority of its members came from other churches. The mission was to get as many members into a church as possible in order to perpetuate the institution of that church as part of the overall church culture. Now, if we were simply to take a view of what Sunday morning options were like, even in Bible Belt, Tulsa in 1960, and what they are like this morning we will easily know that we are in a different environment for churches. What is now called post-Christian, post-denominational, and even increasingly post-congregational. In this world, has liberal theology's successes and its foundation, a focus on how of church more than on why of church, and on message and membership more than on ministries in the world, has that become its greatest weakness? If, as Conrad Wright said, we tend to focus on the liberal too much and not on the church part of the liberal church enough, will all the great manifestations of theology that Dorian has chronicled, which we have helped usher into the world, will they become nostalgia, become spent, or at best become real in other traditions and other communities, but not in and through ours? I write a blog every once in a while, and it would be present in places of great suffering and poverty and sickness instead of just occasionally visiting them. And the missional church that is transformed eternal needs place, it is like that perhaps apocryphal story of the business company that used to set its mission as making, or used to see its mission as making drill bits, when what is mission for the church and for the church. But in a world where the church itself as an institution has been marginalized and the missional field has shifted and has now become primary in culture, the mission or purpose of the church must shift. The church must see itself as becoming a resource, absolutely, instead of the world being a resource to draw upon to sustain the church, the church must see itself as becoming a resource for the world to draw upon to sustain itself, especially in all the places the world suffers today. 
wrapping it up. The good news, <laughs> the good news for liberalism, which I maintain is also good news for missionalism, is that as we talked about just a few minutes ago, the revolutionary spirit that is required for the shifts underway today is a revolutionary spirit embedded in liberalism. If we can disembed it, in the ways it has become bound up over time in such things as classism, in its own self-reflection, in moderation and fear of risk, fear even of new embodied vulnerable communities. We are inheritors of a tradition of those who sought revolutionary new forms of spiritual community. It was our great preacher, Theodore Parker. What the missional church today has done is to revolutionize that old missionary church and to turn its focus upside down. Instead of going to the world in order to convert the world to its ways and to make more church members and to get more resources, for the, our revolutionary ancestors have given us the structures of freedom to be able to respond to the changing world. Liberalism's fuller sense of freedom is Rhode Island, just a few minutes walk from the convention center and the general assembly and attend worship and take communion in first universalist church that is Trinitarian universalist and uses a universalist book of common prayer. And someone else could go to a Unitarian Universalist Association church nearby or far away where Christians and prayer and communion of many varieties are few and far between and rarely mentioned. But at the same time as we have developed this wide spectrum of theological and liturgical expressions, we do not have much variety among us in the very forms of spiritual community and engagement with the world at a time when this is more vital than ever to connect with people looking for different forms. We have few missional churches and communities and ministries, and there are many different kinds of those that we could uh, choose to model after. We have few new communities, period, that we adequately support and resource. We have too much kept liberalism's revolutionary spirit locked in the box of church culture than it, what it was born in when that culture is dying or gone. But again, the good news is that the seeds of revolution are being planted nevertheless. Community-based ministers are becoming our dominant form of ministry. Part-time and bi- or tri-vocational ministers are being seen not as a weakness, but as a potential strength in our movement, connecting us with the world and its missions. We are seeing ourselves not as individual institutions, but as a movement with many manifestations for a diverse world, as parts of the church universal that James Luther Adams wrote about in our reading, not just, and the Cambridge platform uses, not just to paraphrase Conrad Wright, are we collections of individual churches. Even our existing churches that keep worship as the central act and are attractional in nature, these two are seeing that how many they can help turn out for community justice meetings and missions is more important than how many join their church. And at www.faithify.org, you will see just a glimpse of the new innovative ministries among us. Though I would say only a few uh, I would see as disruptively innovative is what we try to be. And finally, we are finding new momentum 
with a mission that sees making more Unitarian Universalists not as our end, but simply as our means, as only one way among many to the greater end of resourcing, refreshing, and sending people, no matter what they are called, into the world to build beloved community. And in that way, so become the church, both liberal and missional, out there. Amen.